Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Know Your Character, Who's Running the Show? It was given by E.E. Elise Arrow on Saturday, October 30th, 2021, via Zoom. E.E. has engaged in a deep consideration of spiritual work for over 40 years. She has been committed to the expression of service and spiritual principles through theater, support for the dying, and bringing enjoyment to others as a chocolatier. In this talk, she refers to playful figures that visually represented multiple eyes, or parts of ourselves, with varied expressions that were part of the live presentation. She also refers to books by her teacher, Lee Loswick, just this 365, and pay attention and remember, and to a book by Red Hawk, Self-Observation. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. E.E. Elise Arrow. So my topic tonight is on multiple eyes. And I've brought some of my friends along to help represent what's going on on the inside. So I decided to share with you some of the eyes that, well, that are part of my life. All right. This guy is the critic, so he needs to be represented. There you go, buddy. For those of you who have just this 365, this is Lee speaking. And what he has to say here is this, know your character. The teacher E.J. Gold says that there are many characters in us. We can choose which character we are going to animate. So if a character is being animated, that is not the character we would like to be animated, like the saboteur, it is possible to choose another character. The more intimately you know any other character, the easier it will be not to allow that character to interfere. So it's back to ruthless self-observation. So I wanted to share with y'all some ideas that have come up for me in working with this idea of multiple eyes. Now, some of us are studying, we're in a study group of self-observation, self-remembering, and there's a, a chapter in the book on the multiple eyes, where Red Hawk really describes it. There are a bunch of little guys in here, and they're all warring with one another. So I decided to make a visual representation of these eyes. Now, somebody I was in a group with was talking about her internal self, and she referred to having small eyes with big ideas. And I like that so much that I decided to represent these are small eyes. They have little tiny heads, small eyes, but they have big ideas. So there's four of these guys. One of them is quite angry. And then there's these four little guys, four or five little guys down here who look really worried. 
because I got a lot of those in there. They're very small and they're very worried. They're very young as well. And then there's one guy over here is quite studious. So he's the studious guy. And then there's this guy over here who's just kind of inquiring about things. There's this guy who's the critic. And then this guy is the representative of the disciple. So he's got the third eye and a halo. He's the one who thinks he's the spiritual guy and he knows it all. So I'm introducing you to a few representatives of the internal state of EE, I guess. The other reason why I wanted to do this talk in kind of a playful way is that I think sometimes we have a tendency to get too serious about what's going on in the spiritual path. And I find for myself that when I loosen up and become more playful with it, that things get revealed to me much more easily. And I wanted to share some of those with you. So this is one way that I was playing this week with multiple eyes. They can kind of wiggle around there and I can have fun with them. But I also wanted to read you the first poem in Self-Observation, which is kind of a cautionary poem of Red Hawks, because he says, when you embark on a serious study of yourself, there's going to be some things that you're going to find out about yourself that may not be so playful and happy. And this is what you do about them. It's called The Teaching. This book, every chapter has a poem attached to it that pertains to what he's teaching in the chapter. This is the prologue, and it's called The Teaching. It is as old as the stones. It came with humans to the earth, and it offers them a way out of the web of sorrows, but at a price. We must observe ourselves. Our behavior, our inner and outer responses objectively. This means without taking a personal interest or doing anything about the horror which self-observation uncovers, like a bad boy with a stick, overturning a stone and finding a mass of crawling things beneath it. But he refrains from stomping on them. So from my work in this practice of self-observation, this last line in here is actually the hardest part, the hardest thing to do, is to refrain from wanting to change anything, to run away from anything, to stay with an uncomfortable feeling, or the horror, as he's talking about, the horror of what is being revealed to me about myself and these guys. Okay, so turning to the chapter that he has on self-observation, the multiple eyes, he tells us, one of the hardest work ideas to understand is the claim that as we are, we are not unified beings inside, a single eye, always and everywhere the same, but a multitude of eyes inside, a self divided, fragmented into dozens, even hundreds of fractions, competing, warring eyes, each with its own agenda, tone, mood, and beliefs. It is impossible to understand this right away in any way except intellectually. I believe I am one, whole, undivided, and I am constructed in such a way psychologically that the truth of my inner state is impossible for me to see. 
Psychology has labeled such a state schizophrenia and called it a mental illness. Yet, everyone I have ever met, without exception, suffers from this inner state. But we cannot admit to such a thing. To do so would place us in jeopardy. They have a place for people like that. And so to avoid being shot or jailed or placed in an institution, we have all developed elaborate disguises, masks, acts, games, false personalities to hide our real inner state of fragmentation. And slowly, slowly, I come to believe in this pretense as my real self. I will fight to defend it against the attack of exposure. I am a mass of contradictions. So that's the reality of what we've got going on with this. But is there a way to look at it so that we may have an experience of what it is he's speaking to? So throughout our teaching with self-observation, we are reminded to not believe anything that he says. You know, he says throughout the book, you must verify through your own experience. So one of the ways to have experience is to play with it. And another thing I was thinking about during my reflection on how I might be presenting this today was my experience with being in a theater company. And some of you have had and still have experience with working with the theater. So what I was thinking of was like, if all of these guys were in a play, what would that look like inside? So I imagine, and perhaps you could imagine this too. This is one of the ways that I have experimented with this idea of multiple eyes. Because what Red Hawk is saying is that they each have their own agenda. They have their own script even. And on the stage, if you can imagine a stage, stage left, stage right, there's a backstage. There are wings. Anybody who's worked in theater knows that that's how the actors come in and out through the wings on the sides of the stage. And then in the front, of course, is the audience. They call it the fourth wall. And we're actually speaking, our character is speaking to that fourth wall, to that audience. Also on the stage, there is a microphone, which is your voice, and there's spotlights. So these characters have roles to play in my internal play, in my presentation. And uh, some of them really want to grab that microphone. And they even fight over it sometimes, want to be in the spotlight. Other characters, especially these little scaredy characters down here, don't want to be doing that. They're afraid to do that. They're very young, too. So this is another way that I've been thinking about the possibility of how we could look at our situation of having multiple eyes without even trying to get away from it or deny the uncomfortability of having a mass of um, folks inside our heads. And also, who's running the show? So who's got that microphone? Who's in charge right now? You know, the stage manager, you never see the stage manager. Stage manager's got a headset on, but she's got a script. She knows which characters are coming in. She knows the characters to give cues to, to point to, to cause the direction so that everything is running smoothly. So who is that in myself? I don't have answers for these, but these are some questions that have been useful to me as I have been 
engaging in some other different ways of looking at this situation of having an amorphous mass, as uh, one teacher put it, inside my being. So what other ways might we look at these as well? You know, when we were doing plays in our community, some of them that our teacher wrote, we were actually being trained by some people who were actually trained actors. And one of the things that I remember learning very, very early on from some of these actors was to know your lines so well that when you get on the stage, the real message, the real meaning, the purpose of your being on a stage comes through. And that's really what you are. You are a vessel for delivering a message. And I remember having an experience of being on stage. We would do the play that our teacher wrote called John T., which is about John the Baptist. And I got to play a number of roles, but the character who was John the Baptist was always John the Baptist. And I remember one time I was playing the wicked queen, the queen Herodias, and something happened during that particular performance that just came through. And I remember meeting the actor who was John behind stage. And we just looked at each other when the whole thing was finished. And we said to each other simultaneously, what just happened? And that was that experience of knowing your lines, putting your best forward so that the meaning, something bigger than us came through in that production. And I think that was one of the pinnacles of our producing that play over and over again that we did. So that's one experience that I had. So the possibility of seeing your internal state as being a stage with these characters is one way that I've experimented with it. Another way I've experimented with it has been as we were studying in our self-observation group and we got to this chapter, I was journaling and I was putting my attention on some of these warring characters. And there was one in particular that was really, really bugging me. It was a female and basically she was acting out. And I remember going on walks and this character inside me was just trying to say something. It was really, really, really messing with me. And so at one point I just sat down with my notebook and I said, okay, I'm going to talk to this character. And I called her the petulant teenager. Because for one thing, she had a potty mouth. And those of you who know me know that every so often I'll have a potty mouth. And that's how I know she's there because I've talked to her now and I have an experience. I've had a conversation with her. When I had this conversation, I was really, really surprised because I learned so much. And remember, this is, this is part of my psyche. This is part of myself. I had no idea what was going to be said. But I went back and I was looking in my notebook. I have about five pages of dialogue that we talked about. And I learned some things about working with these internal eyes. And like Red Hawk says, you know, beware. You don't want to stomp on any of these crawly things. You know, I wasn't going to attack her, but I, I wanted to know what it was that she had to say. And she told me some things. I made some notes but the way this conversation went was very revealing to me. So I'm just going to give you a little snippet of it. 
So I acknowledged at the first that she was the one that was taking care of all these little scared guys. I call them the gang because I had done enough work on there to know that there were these like immature parts of myself, these little eyes that were really scared. They came about when there was some very scary stuff going on in my life when I was very young. And that's when they were formed. And then she came along after and she'd been caring for them. And I said to her, you've been taking care of the gang. Do you want to tell me something? And this is what she said. I was the one who got in all the trouble and I was the one who paid for it. I got shut out. I took the drug, sure. But I was also the one that got into college and I didn't have any help. I was alone. And then she begins to remind me in detail of what happened in my life, what happened with my family, what happened when I left home. And when all of these things started happening, all of this trouble that she's talking about. But she was the one that not only got into trouble, she had to make the decisions. She had to make the big decisions that had to be made. And these decisions were life informing. But she assured me that the decisions that she made, she would be sure that they would do the least harm, which is very important. This is part of myself that I had not acknowledged, I had not respected, and I had given a nasty name to. I was being disrespectful to this part of myself who was actually doing me a very big service. So she, you call me a petulant teenager, but that's not fair. I may have started out a teenager, but that's not me now. I'm petulant, sure, but only when I have to be to get you on board. You can really get distracted, especially with all this spiritual stuff. Look, I get it, all the spiritual stuff. I don't mind it. It's what you are meant to be doing. But what I want you to know is that there's a deeper thing going on here, and I'm a big part of it, okay? Me. Okay, thanks. No, really, thank you for telling me straight up. I'm so sorry for, hang on, hang on, she says. Don't get all soppy on me. Look, we have real work to do here. You too, and getting all mushy doesn't help. Have some pie if you need to do that, but don't lay this mushy trip on me. Own your own trips, she tells me. So what I'm saying here is you don't need to apologize. I know you have taken a lot of flack for your poor emotions. Let's just say that was the part that you had to play for a while, okay? It gave me some cover, so I'm just saying thanks, too. Look, if we're going to work together consciously, and then she swears a bit because she recognizes when like these spiritual words come in, and she doesn't like how they just kind of slip in, so she's, she's gets her potty mouth going. And she said, look, let's just agree to be honest and not soppy. Agreed? Me. Agreed. And then she said, you need to get the honesty part because I don't lie. You might get all defendy with your emotions and such, but I'm the one holding the honesty line here because that's how the hard decisions get made. I tell the truth even when it doesn't make me look good. Looking good doesn't interest me. Honesty does. So that's the conversation I have with part of my psyche that I didn't have a voice, but I gave it the microphone. She told me a lot. She told me in very intimate detail what was going on and had been going on in my whole life. I've been through some pretty traumatic things in my life. And she was a very big part, a very big silent partner inside myself. But now we have a relationship. 
I have a relationship with that part of myself. So what Lee was saying is like the more intimate you can know your character, well, the more you have to work with. So does anybody else have any more eyes in there besides just yourself? <laughs> Come on, there's a lot of you out there. And I know everybody's got a big bunch of these guys. I think often this lightness, what you're describing is missing and humor about our eyes. Yes. And at one point in my life, I built Lego figures. Yeah. And then I moved them around and that was so much fun, but it was also very revealing. Yes. yes. Because these eyes are fighting constantly what you said about who's in charge, who is the stage manager and was 15 years ago or something. And it's interesting, there are new eyes now and there are very old eyes. I think some eyes, they died. I could not find them anymore. And some, I think they had a lot of babies. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I said, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And, and this is a whole family, like your little ones, the scarce the scare family down there. These quiet guys are often subtle. They're they're quiet, but they have a, they're so powerful. What I discovered was like they're not so obvious. So my extrovert or that I love to talk, that's very obvious, yeah. But these little guys, it needs some research and really looking deeply to to first see them. The more I soften around this and. The less critical I am and I keep looking, the more I'm seeing that maybe I didn't have quite the right idea. Like calling the one that was giving me the most trouble at that time, a petulant teenager. And she said, yeah, you're right. That's when I came on board because that's how old she was when she was needed and she was developed and she came on board and she's, and she's still at work. She's still working there. And I know she's there. Somebody cuts me off in traffic. Boom, she's right there. And I've got potty mouth going on. She knows what to do. So we have a working relationship now. But what I'm finding is like, for instance, in the first thing that I read to you about knowing your character, Lee was saying, you know, know the saboteur. That was a very particular one that he was working with with me with that name, the saboteur, but I hadn't actually looked at it. So recently I have been looking and once again, I've noticed that this is a very well-developed I within myself that has a job to do. And it's not one of those ones that grabs the microphone, like you said, and it's a he, that was the other thing that was very interesting. You know, it's not gender specific. It's a certain kind of energy that's being held and worked with. And this one has a skill set that's kind of a stand-in for my father who was not able to be a father for me. But he has the skill set of that missing piece in my relationships in my family growing up. So getting to know these characters intimately has been very useful to me in my work. Getting to know myself, getting to have self-respect. These were not well-developed muscles. I think you can understand what I'm saying. Not well-developed muscles growing up. Being one who tends towards self-hatred. I remember getting a little teaching from Red Hawk about self-hatred. I said at one point to him, I wish to remember the self-hater and to love the self-hater. He'll hate that. 
The self-hater will hate that, but I'm going to do it anyway. And he corrected me. He said, it's not that the self-hater will hate that. It's the self-hater won't believe you. Now, there's a little piece of teaching in there. I'm still trying that one on. If I try to impose anything upon any of these guys, one of the first lines of defense is they will not believe me. Now, when I say, who is this me that's speaking? That's a whole other question that's sitting in there. Okay, is this a spiritual eye? Is this a work eye? We do speak about having a work eye. And so, you know, is that the, the spiritual guy that my petulant teenager was criticizing for, you know, me being all spiritual and don't get soppy on me because that's where I get all my emotional stuff going on. She's saying, you know, I don't need that. I don't need on any of the emotional stuff. I've got my work to do. I know what my work is. You go and do your spiritual stuff and that's fine with me, but it's nothing to do with her. So this was very, very interesting. And to be able to say that that's okay with myself, I'm not trying to like make anything join up. I'm not trying to make one be another or anything like that. I don't think that's the way to go with it. Not for me anyway. um, What what I also learned for me, it's a really big part to be grateful for all eyes because they are necessary that I ended up here where I am. So they, they had at one point in my life a necessity and to say, okay, where is your place today on stage? then I can be the stage manager and not she is a little rebel who is taking over the stage managing part too, yeah? Yeah, I think that you bring up a good point too because one of the questions that arises for me is where does the power really lie? Where does the power in all of this lie? And the more I keep looking, the more I'm finding that The power lies just under the surface, the quiet ones, the one that I had been calling the saboteur because that's the one that's got a skill set. He's a distractor. He knows how to veer away from danger. He's a protector, basically, is what he is. The other thing that I'm learning about this is these guys, they have their own agenda, but they're all survivors. They have come into being in order to help me survive this life. So when you say to be grateful for them, to show respect, to even acknowledge that they exist. I mean, that was the thing that I learned from talking to this petulant teenager, but she was saying, listen, I was doing this all alone. I didn't get credit for any of it. I did all of these things. I took the bad rap, did the time I did, you know, whatever it was, whatever the consequence of my actions was, She was the one that got the bad rap for it. And she didn't get any credit for that. She didn't get any apology. She didn't want an apology, but she just wanted to be acknowledged for doing the work. Now I can do that. Now I can do that. So it was very revelatory to actually have a conversation. But with respect, like I said, it's not one of my strongest muscles, but I'm learning how to be respectful, not only of the inner guys, but of you guys too. If you're not doing it over here, you're not doing it over there. That's what I've learned. Your chief talks about the possibility of developing a real eye. Mm-hmm. So is that one of these characters without a voice? Is there some alchemy 
that creates this? Do the multiple eyes go away or do they take a back seat? What's the relationship between multiple eyes and a real eye? When you're talking about Gurdjieff, he's one of the people who brought forth this idea of multiple eyes inside of us. And so this is not a new idea. It came about when people had never been exposed to anything like psychology, for example. I was just asking, when did Freud, when did he live? And Freud and Jung and those guys, it's like, when did the idea of psychology even enter the popular dialogue? And I think it was around about the time that Gurdjieff was living and was bringing forth these ideas of how our psychology is really a multiplicity within ourselves that we don't acknowledge. So to your question of develop a real I, I can't speak to that right now. I just feel as though I'm kind of in the mess of the exploration of finding out, of finding out within myself. Now, a real I would mean that one would have an idea of where personal power was. An authentic self, an authentic self would be what I would consider what your question is is addressing. It's something that never lies, something that is reliable. To me, that is an acquisition of personal power. This is one of the questions that I'm asking myself, like, Where does the power of this teaching come from? Where does it reside in me? How may I make use of this? And this whole idea of power, do you remember that phrase, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? It's from Lord Acton. There's a refinement of that phrase, which I like. It seems to be even more true, which is, That power doesn't necessarily corrupt. In other words, we needn't be afraid of power. It doesn't necessarily corrupt, but it does reveal. And that's what I'm finding when I look within myself and I do this kind of work. I'm finding it's a revelatory process. When I have these conversations with these funny little guys, you know, respectful conversation, and and it's a sincere conversation. I'm not making this stuff. I couldn't make this stuff up. The stuff that this one eye told me, I couldn't make that up because she was absolutely right on. And she knew how to put me in my place too, incidentally, which is, <laughs> which I needed. I need a little humility with this stuff. I don't know how I can answer that. I think staying with the question of it, when are we kidding ourselves too, that we have, we have a real eye. It, it's, It can be tricky. It can be very tricky is what I'm thinking about that, unless you have more of an idea. Actually, I just asked a question because it it just came up. But as I'm thinking about it, it seems like it's possible to have an intention that is very strong Mm -hmm. to practice, to engage the work, Mm -hmm. to surrender and be moved. Mm -hmm by what's wanted and needed. So these are words. But when I think about my own question, maybe that gathers enough power mm-hmm. to be the majority vote. And that always takes precedence. Maybe these other guys still hang around, but if something is really needed, this real I is in charge. 
presents itself, yeah. As you were speaking about those different aspects, mm -hmm. I was trying to relate that to the uh, teachings that I've been learning about. I agree with what you were saying is to not be critical of any of those aspects because they're all playing a role for a reason. Mm -hmm. And when we start judging them and saying that they're bad and wrong and they shouldn't be there, then that uh, if you're relating to the inner child, then the inner child's not being supported and acknowledged, just like it didn't often in our childhood. Mm -hmm. It got squashed and uh, not appreciated or honored or uh, or dealt with. I was really appreciating what you were sharing about the different characters and the different aspects of self and the importance of the role of each one of those. You mentioned, too, to see what it has to say. Yes. What's its purpose there? What's its message? Also, to what happens to these? Do they grow up? Do they die away? I don't really know, but I know that they become less problematic somehow. So maybe they do grow up. A child can be very wise. They do tell the truth. Somewhere along the line, as we grow up uh, or become so-called adults, uh, we can lose parts of that honesty and vision that a child has. I wanted to speak also to something that I think just got touched on but didn't get really explored, and that is that some of us in our past have had very traumatic experiences. So the cautionary poem that I read in the beginning is actually very, it's a very good thing to remember that when we begin to look at ourselves, some of the things that we see were not understood by ourselves when we were younger and things happened to us. Sometimes some very terrible things happened to us. And there is some, I really try to stay away from the word healing, but for myself, I have had to work through some traumatic experiences that have come up recently because they get triggered. But using these ideas that have come forward from the work and that we're working with with self-observation, I have more tools now to be able to look at situations that once were so traumatic that I had to develop these kinds of little scared guys in order to survive. That's how I'm seeing the bigger picture with these little guys too. So I got to a place recently where I was feeling traumatized again, the same feelings, the shortness of breath, the sweaty palms, all of the physical manifestations and memory coming up, sometimes coming up in dreams and terror, literal terror. So here I am at my age, those triggers that terrified me when I was younger are getting reactivated now. Is there a different way of being with that? And one of the things I came up with was, what if I actually stay with that situation as long as I possibly can? And that's what I have learned through doing this work, that this is what builds the muscle the only way I've found, this is for me, the only way that I have found to work through fear is to be in the fear when it arises, not to think about it, not to try to make it come up, 
not to talk about it, Lord knows, or write about it. When it's up, be there, be with it. Look around, stay with it. That's why I said that that's some of the hardest work I've ever had to do is to not stomp on those crawly things when they show up because that's the horror of the situation. And breathe, thank you. (laughs) But that is the key point is to be with it, be alive in it. It feels like you want to do anything to get away from it. You know, we're not pleasant people to be around when we've been traumatized. So we try to be good little eyes and not rock the boat. But is that self-honest? Is that the most honest person that I can be? I don't think so. I know this in myself. I know that that is not the honest me. There was a scared person back then. Horrible things happened. But as a practitioner in this way, being able to stay with it, to face it, that's the hard work for me right now. And it still comes up. Not so much. So that's the thing I wanted to say. It doesn't come up so much as it did. I mean, at one point in my life, I remember looking in my journals, I'm going, I can be afraid of anything. I can fear anything. I'm really good at at being in fear. I got that one down. I know what it feels like. I know what triggers it. But I, you know, I really don't want to do that anymore. (laughs) Do that anymore. Rather these guys settle down, play your part. I'm going to take care of these guys a bit more. But this idea of re-traumatizing is actually quite interesting to me. But I got friends in high places. Arnaud Desjardins was a friend of Lee's. And his teacher told him the same thing. He said, Arnaud, you are an amorphous crowd. Let us use the image of several contradictory characters within you. You may consider each emotion, each fear, each desire each inner state is one of these characters. If you are not absolutely sure of this in one way or another, acknowledge your complexity, your multiplicity. There is no possible path. That's pretty distinctive. He said, there's no possibility on the spiritual path unless you can acknowledge that you're a multiplicity. That's a pretty big exclamation point for me. There is such a thing or one personality doesn't know about the other personality. It's, a, it's an actual condition that the psyche is so traumatized at some point that it splits off. It's a condition. It seems like it's a matter of severity. We all have the seeds of that in us. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of how extreme that is. Yeah. So when one of those eyes come up, I mean, we can talk about it in <laughs> um, theoretical terms. But as you're talking, I'm thinking about how do you practice with that when one very potent mm-hmm. eye shows mm-hmm. itself? So I can only speak about my experience. And what I have learned is that I have friends who help me with that, to help me to stay with it. I believe that that's where the venturing happens because it, what gets triggered is the child the immature psychic eye that didn't have all of the information, it didn't have the skillful means to be able to mature itself, to survive in a mature adult way. But now that we are adults and we have the skillful means, we have friends who can help us, 
That's why we work in groups doing this stuff. That's why we're not doing this alone. Not people just to inspire us, but people to say, look, I know what you're going through. I've been through something similar. I know what it takes. Humility is necessary in this process because we need to grow up. We do. We need our internal eyes need to be able to know that they are safe. An adult that does not feel threatened relates to a, a terrifying experience differently to than a child that doesn't know how to doesn't know how to survive except to you know be afraid <laughs> be afraid and terrified what i was reminded is this distinction what i think anu also is making this between reaction and response mm -hmm. Because that is for me very helpful. Can I stop for a moment and breathe? And okay, how could I as an adult respond to the situation in the present moment? When I'm in the present moment, then I'm acting like an adult. But if then something comes up from my past, what is interfering with this moment, with this situation, what has nothing to do with my experience 20 years ago. If I'm able to stop and see what is wanted and needed in the moment and accept what is as it is here and now, then all these eyes are in their place, but they are not running the show. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a matter of getting rid of anything. As soon as I got that going on, then there's going to be... Conflict. No, no. <laughs> As we go along tonight, it seems like the question is being refined. Who's running the show? I mean, these guys aren't going to go away. Mm. But like, who's in charge? Who's So do you consider this work with multiple eyes to be psychological work or spiritual work? Do you make a distinction between the two? So I've got a bunch of questions. <laughs> Just keep coming. <laughs> what about this idea of non-expression of feelings, which is one of the principles in the Gurdjieff work? Does that have any place here or not? You know, in a few weeks, we'll have a talk about that point. Mm -hmm. But it seems like giving them a voice has been such an important part of this process for you. Giving them a voice. Well... I think giving them a voice is different to expressing negative emotions. Giving something a voice is listening to a part of myself that I had not listened to before. That's different to expressing a negative emotion, which is the distinction between reaction and response. So can I take a break? Can I breathe for a moment? Can I consider what I've heard? Can there be a pause instead of a reaction? Even if I am feeling angry, annoyed, really put off, particularly if it's a pattern in me, we know how we are with this stuff. Like you use the word refinement. And I think that that's where the practice comes in is that when we are in a situation that we know is going to be controversial, Are we able to practice with taking a moment, taking a breath? And what I wrote down here was 
Here is where I may use this information. If I am able to find in myself the strength to not react, the strength to not react, to pause, to look, feel, take note, not necessarily write it down, but notice, and do nothing to dissipate the energy that is brought up when you have a negative emotion. Now, one thing I think we can recognize is that there is energy there when we have a negative emotion, anger, for example, particularly towards someone else. There's anger there. Okay. There's energy in that. Well, the thing is, if I do nothing and do not react, then I'm at a point when I can make a choice. Otherwise, the reaction is the dissipation of the energy, not in a good way. But if I can garner that energy, if I can hold that energy in that pause, even if I'm not practiced to not be angry, I can practice with that now. I can choose to use that energy differently. And the only way we can do this is to be in that situation, it seems to me, especially with my friends, for example. You know, I had one friend who was very upset with me one time. I got really scared. I got scared because I thought I was going to lose her friendship. But I had to go through that to learn that I wasn't going to lose her friendship. There was something deeper there that allowed her to have those feelings and to let me see that. And it didn't threaten me, but I did not get beyond that threat until I went through that experience. She's still a very dear friend of mine. So that's why I'm saying that this is a revelatory practice. That in particular that you were talking about. Because we're working with the energy within ourselves. We are working with that power. And the power reveals, doesn't have to corrupt. I think that when we react, that is potentially harmful. That is power corrupting. When we are able to respond by holding that energy, getting to the point of where we can choose how to use that energy, then we have built a muscle. Even if it's that we don't say anything, that energy is building that muscle to give us a choice. Otherwise, we don't have a choice. We're mechanical, and I think we can pretty well recognize that in ourselves. When we can get to a place of feeling that energy but not reacting because then you're able to actually choose how to use that energy. I I like the way you put that. You know, it it doesn't always happen to us in a clean way, though. I have to say, I'm still working on getting this to work for me, (laughs) getting myself to work it. Because, like I say, I don't have strong muscles around this. It's a process. And, you know, when do we speak? When do we not speak? Being mindful of where that energy is in my body is is a very useful practice, which is why I really love doing the self-observation work because it focuses in on what's going on in the body. Mm-hmm. And if I've got tension going on in my body, then that's a misplacement of really good energy. May I use that in a more creative manner, in a friendlier manner, in a softening way? May I use it to refine my speech, for example, to say something in a more kind way to somebody that where I would just react in a way that is not kind. 
to really not harm somebody else. Or sometimes just to be a listener to someone who's in a space of being reactive. And it's not easy work. It just isn't easy work. But it is rewarding. Staying with it has taught me that this is very rewarding. So the last thing you were talking about was reacting. Yeah. And if you don't react, then you can use the energy in a different way. And for me, reacting cost me a lot of energy. So that's my motivation for self-observation is because, you know, I realize that I'm losing energy. And if I can use that energy, like you said, for a higher purpose, for a better use, then just blowing off this energy, wasting it in a way. And I was wondering if you could speak to addiction, because I feel like I can be addicted to these eyes. <laughs> and that's another thing that for me is not useful is to like to be addicted to the eyes or to be distracting and in denial by being addicted to other things or distracting myself with other things so that I don't have to see what's really going on. Well, maybe that's the point. The thing that you're distracting yourself is feeling the feeling. Right. It's true. Well, I don't know if you have anything to say about addiction related to this whole thing. Maybe there's something you're really trying to get away from, but that's why it's called radical self-honesty. Because mostly we don't want to see that about ourselves. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And to lighten up a little bit. That's one of the things I've discovered in, in this new book called Pay Attention and Remember. There's some really good stuff in here. But one of the things he's saying is that we're so tense. We are so tense. He said, if we could just lighten up. He doesn't say relax, incidentally. I've got a friend who says, if anybody tells me I want to, I just want to throttle them. You know, I just want to choke them. I don't want anybody telling me to relax. But he said, if we're tense, we can't do anything. We really can't do anything. Is this psychology or is it spiritual work? And I, I don't like to use those words. I don't, because then we get into all of these false arguments that are just, they're pointless to me. They really are. They're not useful. We need this work. This is what's showing up. I know I need it, so I do it. I need this work. It's showing up like this, so I'm doing it. 